all these companies that lend to people with credit scores below 600, almost all of them are privately owned by individuals. Almost all of these founders used to run car lots in the past and then became lenders, and almost all of them are billionaires. For me, that shows that there is a market inefficiency that nobody is addressing quite yet. And so I don't feel bad about reducing their margin and putting it back into the consumer's pocket, number one. Number two, it's a huge market. There's 100 million auto loans out there. I, the biggest market share of any such lender is like 5% or so, so it's very fragmented. By the time I'm so big that I'm actually impacting somebody meaningfully, I'm a very, very big company already, and so I think there's, there's room to do both. Not upset the competition too much, yet do something really good for consumers. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's guest is unique in the fact that uh, Nicholas Henriksen is not a professional developer per se. He's a venture capital guy who started a company um, really out of his Stanford MBA class through a venture capital or professor, professor that did venture capital, and then away he went, built this company, sold it to a billion-dollar organization that is now valued at $30 billion. So very humble, interesting story of just how this all unfolded, has traveled the world, been in different areas. So just an interesting and different type of show, and hopefully you enjoy it. Now, as always, thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. We're also mentioning and promoting the CRG e-courses to get to know yourself better. And we think about leadership or values or personal style or health and wellness is we're just building out the CRG Academy so that people can transform their lives. So again, thank you for being a listener. And here's our show with Nicholas Henriksen. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's guest is a little bit different than some of the people that we've had in the past where we have an individual who has been very successful in the entrepreneurial field, raising venture capital, building a company, selling that company. And so we're just going to have a conversation with him about his journey and some of the things that have occurred to him. And of course, as you know, at Secrets of Success, we always get into story as well. So welcome to the show, Nicholas Henriksen. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, very. you're welcome. You're welcome, uh, Nicholas. And now, uh, can I call you Nick or do you like Nicholas? What do you prefer? I actually go by Nikki, believe it or not. I'm from Germany originally. I'll get into that in a second. But in Germany, people call me Nikki. Well, uh, we're, since this show has been listened to all around the world, we're just going to assume somebody from Germany is there. So with Nikki, it is. Awesome. So, uh, so Nikki, uh, welcome to the show. And, you know, when we think about uh, Secrets of Success, you know, most of our shows, we have, you know, the person's journey that got them to where they're at right now. So you mentioned earlier now, are, were you born in Germany? Is that yeah, sort of so I was born and raised in Germany, Munich, to be precise. That's where the Oktoberfest is. Okay. Well, of course, that's very, very important that we all know that since we can't travel and go there anyways. But anyway. So well, they paused it this year. They pushed it to next year. 
Okay, for sure. And we'll be back in it. Whenever somebody's listening to this show, because it's a legacy show, uh, just have a beer on us and then away you go. <laughs> okay. uh, now, uh, what did you sort of, what's your story about Germany and how you came to North America? Yeah, happy to share. So I was born and raised in Germany. My parents, believe it or not, are from Argentina. So they went to Germany to study abroad for a year or two, stayed for 40. My two brothers and wow. I were born and raised in Germany, yeah. And then I'll go over this really quickly. In the first couple of years, I used to play soccer a lot. Had a broke my leg skiing, so I wasn't allowed to play soccer for six months. And somehow, serendipitously, got into playing golf. And so I got hooked on golf, started to play a lot, became relatively good at it, and ended up playing on the German national team for four to five years. Wow. So what was your um, sort of handicap that you played on? What level were you at? Uh, I was at plus two, so I would play on average two under par. It's a little bit different in Germany because in the U.S. you you just hand in the scorecards where you played well and you don't hand in the one where you didn't play well. Well, I I only played hard courses all the time and I had a hand in every scorecard. Plus two used to be relatively good in Germany. Um, Oh, it is pretty good for those of us that play... um, amateur golf out here you know if i get under 100 i'm all excited so um, plus two is fine yeah i I tried to do that in 27 holes to stay under 100 (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah well hey listen i'm just having fun and i'm enjoying myself so me too great now what did your parents go to germany to study so my my dad is a, a gynecologist specialized in fertility treatment and my mom used to be a biochemist and they were doing research in Germany. What was interesting at the time, you could do part-time see patients and part-time do research. And they really enjoyed like having the option to do both. Then my mom had three kids, so she, she, her research became raising three kids. <laughs> and my dad became self-employed and brought himself into a clinic, became an entrepreneur. And then from then on, his journey was uh, in Germany owning clinics, buying laboratories, and he ended up working with private equity funds to buy up and consolidate the industry. Wow. So uh, really in medicine and then moving into this entrepreneurial side. So you come by this space honestly. Yeah. So the the medicine part, I don't understand that well, obviously. (laughs) The entrepreneurial part I thought was really fascinating because it, it taught me early in life how Private equity works, like understand how value is generated. I actually think, it, believe it or not, private equity companies are really, really good at creating incentives and aligning interests of individuals to all align them with a company to build a really big company. They have a bad rep, but like the individuals who run private equity-owned companies are usually incredibly sharp and often are really strong leaders. I think people underestimate that. Well, you don't raise millions of dollars in um, really being, well, I don't want to say uh, jerk or greedy, but you do have to have some interpersonal skills, 100% influencing agree. skills if you're going to be raising millions of dollars for individuals. Not not everybody is the wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. It's funny in, um, yeah, in, in, in Germany, private equity has a very bad rep not because of what they've done, just because of how they're being perceived. I think it's gotten better, but I agree. Like the, the, my friends who are in private equity and, and, and investment banking, also senior, actually really strong leaders. Mm. 
Of course. So here you are, you um, sort of finish your original schooling. Did you head to university or college after? Yeah. So in, in Germany, we don't have college sport the same way we do it in the U.S. So my, my golf, quote-unquote, career was during high school, after high school, while I was at the military. It used to be mandatory to go to the military for nine months in Germany. Mm-hmm. And then I had to make that decision, do, you wanna, do I want to proceed pursue golf or do I want to go to college? And I decided to go to college, study computer science and finance. Did and not where did play you do the, that? Pardon? Where did you do the study? Oh, yeah, I started in Germany and then I did two semesters abroad, one in Chile in South America and another one in Australia and Sydney. Oh, bummer. Uh, both really just tough places to go. They're horrible. So, uh, now, would you, would you, as many Europeans, and a lot of people listening to this don't get this, probably you speak four languages. Yeah, so I speak German. I was born and raised in German. I learned English and think in English and dream in English. Um, I speak Spanish because my parents do, and I speak Portuguese like a three-year-old because I love Brazil. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What's Brazil doing being Portuguese when the rest of the continent is Spanish, right? It's so. funny as you laugh about this. Argentinians are incredibly proud. And so when, I, when we visited our family, which we did every year, and I was thinking about where to study abroad, all my South American family said, well, you know, there's only one country really in South America, it's Argentina. I ended up going to Chile because I didn't want to spend too much time with my family and be forced to speak German all the time. But Brazil was nowhere on the list because like, Argentinians, they can't even speak Spanish. And then it took me a long time, very late in my young life. I visited Brazil for the first time and fell in love and then mm. realized Portuguese is such a fun language to learn. Mm. Mm. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, I remember traveling to Europe as a, well, a late teenager, early 20s. And just about everybody I met there would speak their native tongue. So let's it was Holland, it would be Dutch. And then for sure, they then they had German, then they had English, and then sometimes it was French or Spanish. So it was pretty well all of those were there. And, of course, if you were from Italy, you would speak Italian, and then you're mostly German, and then probably Spanish, and then probably English, so, yeah. which is pretty cool. It's uh, What you're hearing from me, uh, Nicholas, is envy. Because I could barely speak English. Yeah. Well, it's, you'll it's just nice laugh. To I went to all those languages. Yeah, that, like in theory, I agree. I went to a wedding recently, and and uh, the lady was sitting next to me after five minutes of us having a conversation in Germany. In German, he said, "Wow, I'm really impressed by your German." I'm like, "What do you mean?" It's like, "Well, you have almost no accent." I'm like, "I've lived in Germany for 27 years." He's like. Oops, what happened to your German? <laughs> you sound like an American now. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm lost in translation somewhere. Oh, well, there you go. Somebody was being judgmental. And then how was <laughs> your right. time? You know, Australia is one of my um, favorite countries. How was your time in Sydney? Sydney is amazing. It's an incredible lifestyle. Such a pretty city. And then, you, like, not only did we some do, do some interesting classes, but we, um, we also got to travel quite a bit. Well, of course, if you're going to go to Australia, you have to, right? Yeah, we went up the East Coast. Um, it's just huge. The country looks so small on the map, but you forget it. it's a continent, and you travel for days, and you make barely any progress. Uh, I, I really, really like the country. I haven't been in a long time. It's just too far away, sadly. Well, it is a major. We were just there a couple of years ago, and I've been there three times. And we drove from um, Melbourne to Brisbane. 
So uh, oh, yeah, but we did take a month doing that, and you know, it was 2,500K, but we're just enjoying ourselves along the way. Uh, and I've been to Cannes, and so, yeah, it is a big country. And people, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, forget uh, how big it is and that it can take a while. That's why they have all these shows on these truckers that have these long trains and stuff like that. But I digress. Yeah. So that being bit. said, you graduated. Then what did you do after that? Yeah, so I looked into banking and consulting. That's what all my peers did. And those would have been really interesting and cool jobs. I just, I just really wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Number one. Number two, I still wanted to travel a little bit for work. And so I decided to join what used to be in an early stage startup that invested in renewable energy projects in India and in China. So I spent a lot of time in India and especially in, especially in India, a little bit in China. Did that for two years and then felt like it was A, time to change, and B, I really wanted to go in tech, into tech and understand tech and entrepreneurship better. And, and so I thought maybe I should look into getting, getting an MBA and go to business school, which is how I ended up in, in San Francisco or near San Francisco and, and Stanford. And so did you get your MBA from there? I did, yeah. I moved in 2011. Um, spent two years at Stanford. That's where I met Chris, who became my future co-founder of my two businesses now. Um, he's a huge car enthusiast. He, he loves cars. I, I don't mind cars, but I don't particularly love them, but he was obsessed with them. His dream was to work for a Formula One company. And towards the end of business school, Chris and I teamed up and said, let's do something entrepreneurial in the car space and figure out what it is. And all of a sudden, all our classmates approached us with one of the same question, how do I sell a used car? And we went from giving advice to selling our classmates cars. Wow. Well, it's interesting. Just so you have a bit of background, Nikki, I was um, 10 years uh, consultant to the auto industry. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we can can have some good conversations about that. When you think about it, up here in Canada, we call it curbing, right? If somebody wants to just do a used car off the the grid. Uh, But then, of course, there's used car lots. And then now with, you know, the online space, you have you know, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever. So tell us a little bit about how this unfolded. And, you know, my son's into cars and I enjoy cars. I don't like fixing them like, you know, some of these people like to fix a a 100-year-old Model T like my neighbor. But um, with that, just explain sort of the thinking that you went through to, you know, start a ground-up, you know, um, embryonic company. Yeah, interesting. really interesting question. So we had taken... I wanted to start a company no matter what. I spent the two years figuring out what it would be. And then we took a, a class by one of our professors and lecturers who himself was a venture capitalist entrepreneur. And it was all about, it's called finding product market fit. So figuring out what is it that people would pay for. Like the most important thing is creating value for customers in an early stage company. And so Chris was the one who said, hey, all these people are asking me for one and the same thing. I think I can provide the value that they're asking for. Why don't we provide the value, sell these classmates' cars, even if it feels like we're doing something that doesn't scale at all, and try to learn. And so that's how we decided to wash our classmates' cars, take photos, put them on Craigslist at the time, go on test drives. And so we we were indeed delighting our customers, which is the most important thing. Our customers were super happy. We made a little bit of money. And then we asked ourselves, okay, now what's the most painful part of the process? And then we determined it was the test drive. We waited for test drivers who never showed up. Or if they showed up, they either came late or they only came to test uh, to kick the tires. And so we thought, 
what if we created an experience where we didn't have to be present during these test drives, but customers could just access the car by swiping an ID or something or through an app? And so that's how we started using prototypes of technology to help ourselves remove ourselves from the process and scale the business. And when we shared that with some of our lecturers and professors, they got really excited and said, hey, you, you're already far more, far more ahead than you think you are. You, you've demonstrated value. You have some revenue. You have good ideas how to leverage tech. Um, can we invest in your company? And so we ended up raising $1.2 million from professors and lecturers and, and friends uh, to, and you didn't even round. you weren't even really planning that at that time, were you? No, no. It, it all happened when I was having lunch with that same professor who was teaching the class that we so so much liked, and I asked him, "What should I do with my life? I want to start a company, or I want to I need to find a job now because we graduated." And after an hour of talking, he said, "I think you already made your decision. You should be selling cars because that's what you've been doing the last six weeks." And if you do want to make this a company, he has $50,000 to get started. Wow. And what did you think about that at that moment? Yeah, I was, uh, I was shocked. Like, I couldn't believe it. The, the gentleman I'm talking about, his name is Andy Ratcliffe, incredible person. He was the start of venture capital in, I think, 95, was the first investor in eBay, later on started Benchmark Capital, which is probably one of the top two, if not the best venture capital fund now big investor in eBay and Uber and Snapchat and you name it. And so it's that person who tells us you should start a company. So I called Chris and told him, dude, we have a problem. Like Andy has proven to have had good judgment in the past. And now he wants us to start a company. He wants to give us money. And he's like, that's cool. So I can quit the job that I never started, but I signed the job offer that was about to start in six weeks from then. And then we can do something that's much more fun than taking a normal job. So that's how we slipped into it. Wow. So uh, share with the audience what your company actually did, because interesting enough, in spite of uh, your success, this is something that's um, not um, that I'm not aware of, and I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't be in terms of uh, what you created there. Yeah. So first and foremost, all these startups have either what I call a false start or pivot really quickly because they start with something and realize either this is not working or there's something better to do out there. So our company was, uh, think of it as a digital platform to sell your used car, but like a marketplace where you don't have to do a lot of work. So the next version of classifieds. And we connected buyers and sellers, but we took a lot of the advising role. Test drivers test drive by themselves through our technology. But we realized this peer-to-peer -peer doesn't work. The seller always wants more for the car than it's worth, and the buyer is so price sensitive, he'll just haggle forever to get another $50 off. And so since that wasn't scaling as we wanted, we discovered that we could have access to much, much more cars at lower prices even if we worked with leasing companies, rental companies, or, or simply the wholesale auction, which is the, the source of inventory for most dealers. Mm -hmm. And so instead of doing peer-to-peer, -peer, which sounds really attractive, on paper, but is really, really operationally complex if you do it in person. <laughs> a, pain in but, a pain in the butt because you have the one-on-one -on -one individuals you have to deal with too. Exactly. It doesn't scale very well. And if you do, if you make a deal happen, both of your customers are unhappy. And so what we ended up doing, we, we took the inventory that was available to dealers to buy at what, what's called the wholesale auction and made that accessible to consumers. So we gave consumers access to the channels where dealers buy their cars.
and dealers are really good at reconditioning cars, so we needed to make sure that we focused or limited the inventory to cars that didn't need a lot of reconditioning and that were safe to drive. But there's a lot of those. And so we, we focused on that segment, and that company took off. Like, we raised $10 million in total, scaled it to north of $35 million in revenue. And then we discovered that instead of doubling down on building this operating business, we had built software that powered our business that another company became really interested in. And that other company is called Carvana. They're now the most valuable car retailer in the country. Everything online, think of Amazon, but for used cars. And so instead of raising yet another round and growing our business further, we decided to sell our business to Carvana, change lanes, so to say, work for them, go public, and build what's now the most valuable car retailer in the U.S. You, well, you said it was uh, it had a market value of around twenty five billion now. It's actually that was when we first talked. It's it should be around thirty to thirty five billion now. So it went up again. Wow. Now, uh, just for curiosity, how did you set up test drives without you being present? Is there something that you would actually put into the car to allow people in, or how did yeah, that work? So we so there's a few different narratives. The story we pitched that sounds compelling is. We had a box that was hidden behind the license plate. You could swipe your ID. We could authenticate you because we knew it was going to get the car. You can grab your keys, test drive it. We would always know where you are because it's uh, tracked over GPS. You either return the key or you just keep the car, go to the bank, and pay for it, and then we'll help you do the title work. That's the pitch. In reality, our prototype or minimum viable product was much less than that. It was just a lockbox <laughs> attached to the window with a key in there. And so testers would show up. We would give them access to the key. These cars were on GPS, so we can track where they are. And uh, we just let people test drive by themselves. Wow. And you know what? I never even knew this was out there. But it's interesting because my son is a realtor. What, guess what do they do? Yeah, they, they do the exact box. same thing. They do a lot box because you know what? We don't want to be here to wait to give you the key to get it's, in the house. It's the exact same thing. It's so funny how the car space and the, the real estate space, residential real estate space are so similar. The dynamics are the same. Sellers always think their houses are worth more. Buyers always think they need to negotiate because it's such a big purchase. And as a realtor, you always feel like nobody's happy about your work. <laughs> Well, uh, my son will differ with that. He loves, he loves it. Okay, he, good. I mean, he's one of those where he just works with everybody and just say, hey, let's make this a win for everybody. Okay, I'm so, glad uh, he's, he's doing a good job. But you're right. You're right. It, it, it is when you think about these different spaces, um, it's some of the things where just about everybody will negotiate for a car and everybody will negotiate for a home. But if you go into Best Buy and you're buying a computer, you won't negotiate. Well, maybe you will. Maybe yeah. uh, the, um, the insurance thrown in or something like that, extended warranty, but uh, no, normally you won't. So how did you come in contact with Carvana uh, you know, as a startup and just be attractive to them? You know, A lot of people who are listening have never been in your space as far as this venture capital and building a yeah. company and then selling it. So how did, how did that relationship start yeah, or even question. happen? No, it's a really good question. So at the time, there were four to five companies that tried something very similar. All of us venture funded. All of us trying to attack the market with a slightly different angle. Carvana was the one very vertically integrated to their uh, car dealership. 
they're an inspection center, basically a used car factory, a logistics company, and a bank, and the technology business all vertically integrated. Mm. And so it turns out with hindsight, that's what you need to provide like an exceptional customer experience. Uh, we couldn't do that because we were much less funded. And we also, like that's not a pitch that usually goes very well with venture capital. Venture capital wants you to be really nimble and asset light. Um, yet Carvana was doing so well that you couldn't ignore them. And at the time when we decided that our technology was what's most valuable, we realized that one of our classmates, believe it or not, uh, a lady who was in the class below us at business school was working in partnerships at Carvana. And so reaching out to her was very easy, of course. Wow. Isn't it around uh, who you know, the 2% or we call it the two degrees of separation? Is that what we're talking about? I think about? that's exactly what it is. Luckily, luckily, the world is small and social media allowed you to stay in touch with everyone. Um, but yeah, like we, we feel incredibly lucky. We got lucky how we got to know Corvana. We got lucky that we got along very well with the founders and executives over there. We got lucky how the startup and the sale and the stock price turned out. I think, yeah, better, better lucky than smart. <laughs> well, and it certainly, it doesn't hurt to um, be nice or to be sharp along the way. That is true. So there's there's something to be said about that. So when you think about this, you end up, you know, running part of that division. You had 100 people, you know, almost 200 people working for you. What were some of the things you learned about leadership as you moved along this space too? Yeah, so when I had the prior experience running our own company. Um, and then I realized if you're not the CEO, but you're running a department, you're fully dedicated to a few things, but do them really well, it's actually a very different job. As a CEO, you need to make sure there's bank in them, there's like money in the bank account, there, you need to pitch the vision, you need to hire and recruit. Um, all things I really enjoy, but having a little time out from that and just being focused on making sure a team is successful was a really, really fun experience too. And so the... The, the way I feel like we were successful is I was really good at doing the team's job. Like I wasn't hesitant to sit down, talk to a lot of customers, be in the weeds myself. Usually when you join a company at a certain level, you neither have the time nor the opportunity to put yourself in the shoes of the people reporting to you and do their jobs. But since we were a startup within a startup, that's the group I ran, I did the job first and then I got other colleagues excited and we hired to fill the jobs and the roles that I needed, but I knew at any given time I could do their job. They would, they became better than me, but I could have done their job and they knew that I had done their job. Mm. And so when I asked them to do something, go the extra mile, or when I set really high goals, people knew that I had done it myself. I knew it was possible. And so that helped me a lot, like winning the respect and winning over like the excitement, enthusiasm of the team members because we, we were really in it, all, all in it together, and, and uh, wanted to f like follow that, that mission combined and, and jointly, if that makes sense. Mm. Oh, for sure. Well, rolling up your sleeves and being out there and uh, participating versus sort of the glass room or tower or whatever words you want to use, that was for sure is what you're talking about there and yeah. just being connected to them. Now, uh, interesting, with your great success, Nikki, at your young age, I'm going to say young age, because okay. I'm slightly older, is now you're going into a new venture. Tell Correct. us about this new venture and what it's about 
And some of the things you're thinking about, because you were very fortunate to kind of get out of your startup with uh, some significant funds. And so now what are you going to, what are you envisioning with this new business and then share with the audience what it is? Yeah, happy to do. Let's, let's answer the question, why the change and what we're caring about and why we're doing what we're doing first. And then I'll sure. tell a bit more about what the business actually does. When, when we graduated from business school, I remember one of the lecturers, he was an entrepreneur himself who gave one of the last lectures, said something that really resonated with me. He said, guys, you need to understand you have an incredible safety net now. Like you're, you're in this unique position where if you leave the school, there's a lot of jobs waiting for you. You'll make a ton of money in all of these jobs. Money shouldn't be any of the motivating factors right now. Instead, figure out how can you have disproportionate level of impact. And so for different people, that meant different things. For me, that meant I want to join a startup where even though I'm not paying myself a lot, I have the potential to have a really, really disproportionate impact on a lot of people. And if I hadn't done it at the time, I would have regretted it because I was in this, like, even if it had failed entirely, I would have still had the option to go back to the jobs that all my friends took. And so I feel like I'm in that exact same situation again where I feel like you know, we got lucky and successful through our previous startup and the sale. And now I'm again at a place where if I wanted a job, I would probably get it. I have some financial um, savings, so I, I don't, I'm not in a rush to find a job and had a good outcome. But the person who, has in the, who is in that unique position really needs to think about how can I have disproportionate impact. And in, in our case, something that we feel really passionate about is helping Americans who have really, really high car payments. And because people are dependent on their cars in the U.S., if, if you have a car loan, you're paying, car loans can have all the way up to 29% interest. If you pay so much interest, like you're, you're not only paying for the car, but you're also wasting all your savings. You can't build wealth. And that's an area that we a, understand and feel very passionate about. And so the, the new business that we're building is a digital platform to refinance auto loans. Turns out people refinance mortgage all the time, but people don't refinance their auto loans to the same extent. In fact, less than 5% of all the funded auto loan applications per year are refinances. Although there would be thousands of dollars in savings if you only did it. And so we, we want to double down on that, on that area and that space that we happen to know really well and save, save Americans a lot of money. Mm. Well, if you think about it, uh, you know, being an auto consultant, uh, a lot of dealerships counted, quote unquote, on the extra cars that, you know, they bought a car for 2500 but the finance payments on the 2500 was 2500 Yeah. So, yeah. uh, so a lot of people out there don't know that, is that some of these lower priced cars it was also reflective of the people who had the poorest credit, but also got the highest interest rates charged yeah. against them. So that's what you're talking about. So now how do you propose that you're going to resolve this? Yeah. What you, so what then, you, what, what's your business? Since, since you understand the space really well, this will be a good conversation. If, if you're in the, in the business of lending to consumers who don't have perfect credit, then you're automatically also in the business of assessing risk and repossessing cars. So if we look at, let's just call it subprime, that's, that's mm -hmm. credit scores below 600 on a scale from 3 to 850. If you give subprime auto loans, these are very, very lucrative businesses. You know that 50% of your borrowers at some point will default on their payments. And so you have the other 50% who made their payments. They basically subsidize the first half. 
yet if, if you made your payments and you were really disciplined and you, you, you did a really good job paying your payments, your credit score will improve. And if you were to get a new car loan, you would qualify for a much lower rate. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're basically helping the market adjust for what I feel like is an inefficiency. People who make their payments and prove to be credit worthy to give them loans that reflect their credit worthiness. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you're in the middle of, well, you're sort of dating. And as people know, is that um, credit scores come from credit history. So as my history exactly. develops, then I'm able to prove to you that, well, I made the last 12 payments on time. So now I can intervene and come in there a little bit earlier with that. Now, uh, the question for you when you think about this, and uh, you know, I don't want to get too granular because you know, a lot of listeners are not specifically in this. Yeah. But what's driving your motivation to do it? I mean, uh, these people are making quote unquote 25% money on it. Why would they release that interest to you? Yeah. So the I'm I'm all for it. The people who might be against it are the existing lenders, the incumbents. The big lenders get all of their loan business, auto loan business through dealerships. So if you were a new auto lender, the first thing you do is you knock on doors of dealerships, tell them, hey, can you give me a loan? If somebody needs one, I'll pay you a high referral fee. And so given that the, the, lender, the, the dealerships are the distribution channel for the lenders, the lenders have no incentives, actually have misaligned incentives now with the consumer because the lenders don't want to go after the consumers because they're going to make their, make their, make their dealership group and network mad. And so it, it can't be the existing lender who goes into that business. It needs to be an independent party that creates a marketplace and makes it really easy for consumers to get out of their old loan and into their new loan. And so the, the opportunity here is for people who improve their credit, for people who migrate into a better credit tier, because then you go from what used to be a subprime lender into a commercial bank. Or if you improve your credit even further, you go from a commercial bank to a credit union. And it's these, these tier changes, these migrations into a, a better credit tier that present the biggest opportunity. And for me, I'm just a market maker. I'm just going to make it happen. Hmm. So what is this new business called so that people yeah. can look, you, look it up? Yeah, so the company is called Clutch. The website is with clutch.com and if if you're in the US it only works in the US uh, and have a car loan it'll take you two minutes to get a firm credit offer and then you can know whether or not you're approved for a lower rate it won't hurt your credit and uh, you can save thousands so uh, that's spelled C-L-U-T-C-H so clutch like in a car exactly so, uh, yeah, that's right man well the play on words hey hey that was really brilliant Nikki <laughs> no, so anyways, that's fun. Now, uh, for those people outside of the U.S., and that's fine, and this doesn't apply to it, what are some of the things that you've learned launching this new business from a business principle point of view that could apply more generally to people who have uh, businesses or are thinking about a business? Yeah. So the most important thing about starting a business is to just get started. Oftentimes, if you think about all the edge cases and all the complexities and dynamics ahead of time, you'll talk yourself out of doing something. You'll, you'll talk yourself out of doing anything. And so Chris and I knew that there had been players in the past before, and we knew that it wasn't easy. But we said, let's just go for it anyway. We probably end up with a very different business at the other end of the tunnel, of the startup journey tunnel. 
but the only reason or only way we can end up with a really good business is if we start something and then learn. And so we've, we've applied that in our first business. We, we had to learn that process of customer discovery. We, we felt like we were a little rusty because in a big company, you're more in execution mode and less in discover mode. We got out, out of Carvana in June, raised our funding in July, got back to start talking to customers in August and, and are excited and really enthusiastic about every conversation we're having because we learn something every time we talk to somebody. And so even with the last couple of weeks, the, the model, the distribution model, how to get the customer has changed a little bit thanks to having a lot of conversation and thanks to having our courage to just make a step. So, you know, when you think about your uh, competitors learning about this, are they going to be happy that you're pulling uh, them out of car loans where they're making 25% and maybe it gets down to 15 or something like that? Um, there, there could be some players in the marketplace that aren't going to be all that happy with you. Yeah. So two thoughts. A, I think if you look at all the subprime lenders, like all these lenders that are, all these companies that lend to people with credit scores below 600, Almost all of them are privately owned by individuals. Almost all of these founders used to run car lots in the past and then became lenders. And almost all of them are billionaires. So that, for me, that shows that there is a market inefficiency that nobody is addressing quite yet. And so I don't feel bad about reducing their margin and putting it back into the consumer's pocket, number one. Number two, it's a huge market. There's 100 million auto loans out there. The biggest market share of any such lender is like 5% or so, so it's very fragmented. By the time I'm so big that I'm actually impacting somebody meaningfully, I'm a very, very big company already, and so I think there's there's room to do both. Not upset mm. the competition too much, yet do something really good for consumers. And so that's driving you. So what else could you, we only have a few minutes left in the show, if you can believe that already, Nicholas. Oh, wow. And, um, what would be, um, well, first of all, uh, before we get into, I'll, I'll call it uh, closing remarks and stuff like that, uh, how can people find out about your company and what you're doing and you? And are you, uh, just a sidebar question before you answer that, are you getting into the business of helping other people who are interested in venture capital or raising venture capital, or are you focused on your own business? Yeah, I'm grateful for you asking that question. So. Hey, how do you find me? I think the best way to connect with me is over, <coughs> sorry, over LinkedIn. Um, just look for your name. Maybe you can put my name and or the, the link to my LinkedIn profile in your show notes. I love for people to reach out to me. I, I had a lot of people who helped me. I wouldn't be here if it, was for this, if it wasn't for this gentleman, Andy Rackleff, who I mentioned earlier, who encouraged us to start our previous business. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I can be like a little version of him, help other founders think through their businesses, put them in touch with investors, potentially invest myself. And so I'd, I'd love for your audience to reach out to me and, and, and ask for help or provide feedback. Feedback is a gift and we all get better if, we, if we're candid and have direct conversations. So I highly encourage that. B, I've, I've done investments myself. I, I have a number of companies that I invested in and entrepreneurs I'm helping and I'm, I'm grateful that they feel like I have something useful to say and they touch base with me on a regular basis. And so if, if that somebody is interested in, in some mentorship or just my opinion, please, please reach out. Uh, and uh, can we put on the, uh, we, you mentioned the, the website before with Clutch. Absolutely. Yeah. Put it in the notes. If you yeah. submit your details, you can reach me that way too. 
and maybe you'll be looking for more investors as you grow and expand with it. You I know, if you were to kind of surmise and just kind of put encapsulate sort of the last bit of wisdom and insights and thoughts about life and business, you know, before we close today, what would you say that would be encouraging the Secrets of Success audience today? I think, I think there's two things that I firmly believe in. Number one, whatever you do, you really need to love the space. You need to do it for an alter motive that's not money. In our case, I feel really passionate about helping people who have no or, or little credit improve their credit, build wealth. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I found a way to do my little part to address income inequality. But I'm, I'm particularly passionate about like the mission and less so like the exact economics. I know that if I help enough people, it'll work out very well for me financially. But if money is your main motivator, I think it'll be very difficult to be tenacious enough. These, building these businesses takes long and it's hard, number one. Number two, I encourage people to dive straight into ideas and thoughts. Um, even if they're not fully mature, the most important thing is to get going. Otherwise, you have no chance of learning anything. Otherwise, you'll talk yourself out of doing something. So. I think there's an entrepreneur in every one of us. The most important thing is to take the first step. Good words, good words. Now, I, I don't want to end it. I want to ask another question. And not Let's that I want it. to end the show on this, but if you were to kind of look around and see outside of what you've said already, what are the one or two things, what I would say the mistakes, the things that, that people are doing that you want them to uh, mitigate or reduce or avoid if at all possible? So let's look on the other side of the coin. I, I think it's very hard to generalize. I know what I found incredibly helpful, uh, a helpful piece of advice I received at business school, my professors always told me there's nothing wrong with failing. In fact, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, has the saying which I love is, there's nothing wrong with failing. You can fail as often as you want for as long as you don't fail the last time you try. Um, which basically translates into there's nothing wrong with failure for as long as you work hard and maintain your integrity. And so if, if, if you do that and the business doesn't work, well, then it wasn't your fault. It was just wrong timing or wrong business. But you can always try again. Mm. So never give up. Don't quit. Just keep going and failing is part of the process. Yeah, and maintain your integrity. And for as long as you maintain your integrity and you gave, you worked your hardest, nobody will look back and say, this wasn't worth my time. Like, in fact, um, we had some investors who didn't have a great outcome in our first company. All of them are excited to be part of our next company. Because you maintain that integrity. And relationship, yeah. Well, Nicholas, can you believe that? I mean, already 45 minutes into the show, where, where did that time go, right? I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate you having me. Well, we certainly do. Stay on the line there, uh, Nicholas, with us. But those of you that are listening, Nikki had some insights for us that are a little bit unique compared to some of the other guests and just also had the opportunity to get into this venture capital business, raise and work with um, a company that went into the billions of dollars. Not everybody here has been able to do it. So, but one of the things that, of course, he has mentioned to you is get going, do it. Don't wait. Don't have the science of regret that's on you. And my encouragement is if you have an idea, then as Nikki was saying, start sharing it, start talking with some individuals. 
but mentors that would be encouraging to you, not family members that would say, well, that's a stupid idea. Yeah. So uh, when we think about life, go to the places, as Nikki was saying there too, about reaching out to them and having mentors or being a mentor. Those are the people that you want to go to. Now, as always, thank you for sharing your most valuable commodity. That's your time with us. If you like what we're doing, please share it, pass it on. If you know somebody that would be a great guest, let us know about it and leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.